Welcome everybody. Um, if you could just make sure you've turned off your cell phones and whatnot, that would be great. Um, I'm going to briefly introduce Professor Rutherford. Ethan Rutherford was born in Seattle and now lives in West Hartford with his wife and two sons. His stories have appeared in Plowshares, One Story, American Short Fiction, New York Tyrant, Esopus, Five Chapters, and The Best American Short Stories. His work has received special mention in the 2009, 2010, and 2013 editions of the Pushcart Prize and received awards from the McKnight Foundation and the Minnesota State Arts Board. He received his MFA from the University of Minnesota and has taught creative writing at McAllister College and the University of Minnesota and the Loft Literary Center. His first book, The Peripatetic Coffin and Other Stories, was named a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers pick, a Best Book of the Summer by Publishers Weekly, and long-listed for the Frank O'Connor Award. It was also a finalist for the John Leonard Prize, the Los Angeles Times Art Seidenbaum Award, received honorable mention from the Penn Hemingway Award, and was the winner of the Minnesota Book Award. In a former life, Ethan was both a bookseller and the guitarist-songwriter in the Minnesota-based band Penny Royal, and based largely on his vast knowledge of all things Star Wars, he is, according to my five-year-old son, Leo, a champion. <laughs> we concur. Because when you make a hire in a small department like ours, you know that you admire the creative or scholarly work of the candidate, but you're a little less sure how they're going to be as a teacher and a colleague. So we've all been, you know, really, really thrilled with how much Ethan has poured into both roles over the last few months. And we're extremely grateful for how generous he's been, both to us and to you, his students, with his time, his creativity, and his encyclopedic knowledge of 80s hair metal. We won't be doing a Q&A after the reading. We urge you instead to take a class with Professor Rutherford and turn that class into a semester-long Q&A. Again, we're really, really thrilled to have him here, as I know so many of you are too. Please welcome Ethan Rutherford. Hey, this is great. I feel so popular. I got a mic up here. I was told we're doing a podcast. Um, I've, I was feeling very popular and great about all this. My wife is here, and she was like, wow, they really like it. I was like, yeah, this, this feels good. And I was talking to, to uh, Dr. Dan over there, and he's like, well, uh, this is required. Everybody in here has to come. It's part of the grade. So uh, thank you for being diligent students and making me feel uh, like a champion. Um, so, uh, I'm going to read from The Peripatetic Coffin, and one of the, it's a collection of short stories, and one of the things that happens when you sort of have a book of short stories, you sort of have this sort of nervous anxiety about which story you should read, what's going to sort of catch the mood, and you sort of go, so in this book, I was like, should I read the one about the uh, future sandworms, uh, and I said, no, probably not. Should I read the one about... Um, the boat exploding. I was like, well, maybe. And then I was like, maybe I'll read the other one about the other boat exploding. And then it turned out that boats explode in uh, most of these stories. Um, what I did decide, though, sort of judging uh, sort of by the mood I'm sensing this time uh, in the semester, is that maybe uh, I should read the story uh, with the highest death count. So uh, that's what I'm going to do. I know that I tell you guys uh, to keep the death count low in your stories, uh, but do as I say, not as I do. So, 
This is a story called Camp uh, Winnesaka. The thing is, we were worried about enrollment. We were already way down for the summer, thanks to video games and league sports. Who knows what else? Overconcerned parents, maybe. Worried that their little kid was falling behind the engineers of India and China, etc. cetera. Uh, which, I'm not discounting that. Uh, you do have to think of the future. Uh, but that's not uh, what I'm interested in. The climate we were facing was rough. So in terms of what some of you are calling the debacle, yeah, there are things that I'm worried about, things that I'm sorry about, things that probably could have been handled better. But everybody makes mistakes. That's the first thing that we tell our campers when they arrive in their condor transports. Mistakes happen, but you have to keep the big picture in mind. You have to remain optimistic in your decision making, and you have to value intent. And if the intentions are on the up and up. So it started with Moosey, the moose head that's hung over the mantle in the chow hut for Lord knows how long, and who has over the years sort of become our unofficial mascot. Spirits were low with this batch of campers. I don't know why. We just sort of had a higher number of pasty, sort of obese kids sign up this summer for some reason. They got a kick out of Moosey, um, but it was hard to get them excited about much else. Any other year, maybe it wouldn't have been such a big deal. But this year, with the enrollment issue, it was different. There are four other camps around Lake Oboe, and parents visit during the summer. If they like what they see, chances are they'll sign their kid up for another session, which takes a load off our backs in terms of marketing. But everywhere the parents, uh, we call them pen pals, everywhere they looked this year, it was sullen city. The kids weren't taking care of their teepees. The spirit catchers that they'd made in arts and crafts looked like they'd been weaved by idiots. We staged a capture the coonskins game, and it was like watching apathy battle indecision, a PR disaster, essentially. So the visiting pen pals, they see this and they go, why should we send our kids here next year instead of to one of the other camps? And to that I found myself saying, good question. I really found myself saying that. It was depressing. <laughs> and then one day, Moosey was gone. The campers, they were upset. We were all upset. No one knew who'd taken the thing. I didn't think that it could have been one of our kids, uh, but we did a bunk search anyway. We combed the beach. We had the campers stomp through the brambles, arms linked so they wouldn't miss a spot. Uh, they didn't find him. The fact that someone could just take Moosey, it was a little more than some of the campers could bear. To be honest, it was a little more than I could bear. Things already hadn't been going well, and now this, the effect that Moosey's absence had on these kids, especially the sensitive ones, it was a last straw kind of thing. Some of them wanted to go home and expressed it in no uncertain terms. No one signed up for the Tailfeather talent show, which is normally a big hit, in our camp songs. I mean, you could forget about it. It sounded like frogs eating marbles. It was worrisome. But we didn't know how to fix it, all these campers moping around, but we knew something had to be done. So I think it was Scott, one of our senior counselors, who came up with the idea. Moosey was missing, yes. And that was sad and also infuriating. But maybe there was an opportunity here to you know, harness some enthusiasm 
for Camp Winnesaka. I called an emergency tribal meeting in the Chow Hut, and I told the campers that today was a grave day at Camp Winnesaka, one that shouldn't be taken lightly, a day we shouldn't forget. Some of the campers were crying. I was wearing my ceremonial button blanket and standing below the spot where Moosey had always hung. I asked them if they had faith in me as their head eagle, and they nodded. I told them that Moosey was Camp Winnesaka, and that there are people who are jealous of us and resentful of all of the fun that we have here. People who would rather... And I looked at Eric, the cook, who nodded. And I said, and those people are the art fags across the lake at Camp Chickapony. <laughs> Camp Chickapony had nicer brochures than we did. They had a pool. They said, what are art fags? I said, you don't want to know. <laughs> Chadwick Thorogood raised his hand and he said, what now? I said, we had to stand up for ourselves. What would our elders who are watching us right now have done in this very situation? We had to get Moosey back. There was a moment of, well, I don't really know what it was. I could hear kids sniffling. I pulled my bucket blanket, my butt, I pulled my button blanket over my head. Then I flapped my arms to simulate the flight of an eagle, and I said, we have to get Moosey back. They cheered. We canceled arts and crafts activity time to let the campers marinate on what was expected of them. We didn't know necessarily where Moosey was, but he certainly wasn't here. And Chickapony seemed like a good place to start. And then Jim, one of our senior counselors, came bursting through the door, dripping wet, and he made the announcement that he had just been at Camp Chickapony, and that they did indeed have Moosey hanging in their refectory, upside down, with a cardboard thought bubble taped to one of his antlers that said, I suck. <laughs> I should have. I mean, he smelled like perfume and body odor. I had my doubts he'd actually seen Moosey. But skepticism isn't one of the virtues that we try to instill in our campers here at Winnesaka. Skepticism is like a gateway drug to more destructive impulses, like cynicism. And who wants to sign their kids up for a summer of that? We stormed Chickapony at night. I figured that even if the kids didn't find Moosey, at least it would get their spirits up. At least it would get their blood flowing in the right direction. Generate a little common feeling among the campers for Winnesaka, and we could go from there. But there were problems. It was an amphibious operation. And this wasn't the most athletic or boat-smart bunch that we've had at Winnesaka. Our first raid ended. I, uh, I mean, we were, we were trying to get across the lake, but they didn't even get to Chickapony. Uh, Jimmy Osteo bumped Randall Jenkins, who was holding one of the bow lines, and he dropped it into the water. Tony Rademacher heaved his not unsubstantial weight to port and bent an oarlock while trying to steady himself. Byron McKinstry said he couldn't see through the masks that we'd given them. And then there were the wooden rowboats. They'd always been tipsy, which was the reason we didn't use them very much. The paddle boats were fine, but they were made of uh, plastic and they weren't large enough for our purposes. So, you know, I mean, that's why the reason, uh, that was the reason that we used the wooden ones. 
And since we'd sold most of our life jackets to um, Camp Neotano a couple of months, summers ago, I, mean, I guess we th I thought we wouldn't need them, you know? I don't know. So, in terms of preparation, it's easy to say, always be prepared. But when something needs to be done urgently, sometimes you have to go with what you've got and figure out the rest as you go. A couple of the boats capsized. They were only 10 feet from the dock. Since seaweed sessions had been canceled this year because of cutbacks, there were a few of them who probably couldn't swim as well as they should have. No one died, but there was some flandering. Quinn Kasem ended up drinking half of Lake Obo, and uh, he, he's home now. He's doing fine. The campers, I guess, the Quinn incident, it shook them up a little bit. I reassured them that what we were doing was an honorable Winnesaker tradition. But some of them were a little slow in putting the money on the counter for the second raid. I told them that as far as safety goes, how can you feel safe knowing that someone could just creep into camp at any time and steal something as important as Moosey? I mean, what's next, your sleeping bag? Tom Sloan raised his hand and he asked, why couldn't we just ask Chickapony to give Moosey back? I told him it didn't work like that. Chickapony campers, they aren't like you and me, I said. You can't just talk to them. Not everyone was convinced, which I could tell might complicate things. I was beginning to feel a little nervous about our next raid. And that is when Ward Hamilton came in. He was, well, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what he was doing at Camp Winnesaka. He was good looking. He had muscles. The rumor was that he'd lost his V-card to his 23-year-old social studies teacher, Miss Robrand, which would, you know, certainly be within the realm of possibility. This was his first summer here, and he'd already shattered the archery and long toss records and was in the hot pursuit of the sand jump record, which I had set myself when I was a camper. We all admired him. He was everything that Camp Winnesaka should have been. And something about the indignity of losing Musi, it touched him. He took it personally. We didn't even have to ask him to step up. He walked into the chow hut in full war paint, gave the Comanche cry, and led the, led the campers down to the dock like it was something that he was born to do. I addressed them briefly at the water. I put my hand on Ward Hamilton's shoulder, and I said that I was proud of them for avenging this desecration of Camp Winnesaka and that they should be proud themselves. Plug in and ride the lightning, is what I told them. There's your hair metal band reference. Little nuge. The night was very dark, remember. And this was, well, they didn't find Moosey. I'm not even sure how far they got. And Ward, it's possible that Ward wasn't wearing a life jacket. Or maybe he was wearing it backwards. There's a chance that, you know, it's just hard to say what really happened. There are conflicting reports. One kid said he fell in when one of our own boats accidentally nudged his, and he bumped his head on an oar on the way down. Another kid said he just jumped into the water, which doesn't make much sense. I think I'd just like to say that he was admired while he was here, and he was loved. Anytime a camper drowns, it's a tragedy. I know that much. 
we had a meeting in the sacred circle. I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to tell the campers. I did know that Ward's drowning, well, it had the potential, if it was handled improperly, to be demoralizing to the campers. <laughs> Not to mention the pen pals. And I think it was Eric, uh, it was his idea, the posters. He had some experience with Photoshop, and uh, well, you've seen them. Ward in the bow of the rowboat, hoisting Moosey over his head, looking towards the sun, which, in turn, is showering him with the golden rays of a Winnesaka summer. I told them that Ward was a hero of no small degree and presented the poster to the sacred circle. I said, never forget. I led them in a moment of silence and then fixed the poster to the wall of the chow hut. We made another one and hung it in the sandy can. Grief can be confusing for kids. And well, I think this put things in perspective. Because Ward didn't just die alone in a cold and unbound universe, he died an honorable papoose in an effort to realize all things Winnesaka. And below the image of Ward, Eric had printed the phrase, integrity is not born, it is learned at Lake Obo. Jimmy Donner, who'd been in the boat with Ward, then, uh, well, this is when he came to us. He was upset. There were tears. I think he'd been binging on chocolate. It was hard to make it exactly what he was saying, but it was something about responsibility. He looked at us and he said, shouldn't there have been? And Eric just said, Jimmy, don't. We already have another raid underway, and what is finger pointing gonna do, going to accomplish? You need to think about what Ward would have done. Would he have fired off accusations? Would we, he have let doubt win the day? The next raid was more successful. They didn't find Moosey, but they did come back with one of Chickapone's sacred stones. In this, I think in hindsight, we probably should have been happy with this. <laughs> but you see, Moosey was the whole reason for our going over there in the first place. And there was some uh, sort of a general feeling around camp that once you start something, the ball, the ball was rolling, is what I'm trying to say. The campers, they had certain expectations regarding Moosey. And part of it had to do with Ward. Part of it was because... One of the things that we stress here at Camp Winnesaka is follow-through. They came back with a boar's head next, which was, I think, sort of like the Moosey of Chickapony. We celebrated in the Chow Hut with an extra helping of Mac in Buffalo. We placed the boar's head near one of the posters of Ward. Things were going better than they had in weeks, camper morale-wise. We hadn't found Moosey yet, and that was a bit of a pebble in our shoe, but we'd been successful in a lot of other ways. We had a boar's head. We had one of their sacred stones. Some of the kids even asked me if they could come back next summer. They were having such a good time. It was a couple of small victories for them and for me. But this, then, this is where things sort of got out of control. I figured, eh, I'm not really sure what I'd figured. I, I mean, Chickapony is the camp that you uh, go to if you can't get into Winnesaka. If you look at tradition, that is. I thought that they'd just sort of appreciate the friendly ribbing, that maybe they'd send someone over with Moosey, drop them off, no harm, no foul, and proffer an invitation to their August potlatch, which we have enjoyed for years. And that that would be the end of it. It just wasn't in their interest to begin. The short of it is that they hit back. Chopping down our totem pole, we were asleep. 
They dragged it through a crocus, crocus patch and softball field and down the shore where some boat must have been waiting. It's hard to explain things to kids. Sometimes you say the right thing, but you could just as easily say the wrong thing. They looked to me, their head eagle, imploringly. They were pretty angry about the totem pole. I was angry about the totem pole. It had been around longer than Moosey. It had been carved by a guy who wasn't alive anymore. Taking that totem pole, it was the height of disrespect. And what are you going to do? Drop your kid off at a camp that doesn't have a totem pole? <laughs> so jumping ahead a little bit, you can see where this is going, right? <laughs> back and forth, back and forth. They kidnap kids. They duct take them. They uh, pour syrup on them. They try to get information about where Moosey is. They fight back. Things are going poorly for this poor head eagle. Until finally, it came, to a, it came to me in a dream, I think, what we were doing wrong. The thing is, we just weren't sending enough campers across the lake on our raids. <laughs> it was taking us too long to search Chickapony, and now, especially that we had to get Moosey, the thunderstick, they stole the thunderstick, that, that's an important part. <laughs> in our totem pole back, it just made more sense to have everyone go over there all at the same time. We didn't have enough boats, though, uh, and this was a problem. So it's Eric again, I think. It was his idea, the felling of the, of the spirit grove. Sure, those trees had been there forever, and they were beautiful. And yes, they did house the ancestral shades, at least according to Winnesaka legend, but we needed boats. So I figured that what we do next summer was make it a Winnesaka priority to have the campers plant saplings and chart their growth in the growth charts we would have them make in arts and crafts. It would, put a new type of, uh, it would be a new type of bonding experience, and also one that we could put in the brochure. Plus, the campers could now add boat building to their list of Winnesaka activities mastered uh, when they went home at the end of the summer. They could add logging, too. Before going on, I'd just like to say how much I admire the campers here at Winnesaka. I'd like to make that clear. Never have I seen such selfless industry, such unflagging enthusiasm, such a unity of purpose. Plus, they really seem to enjoy building these boats. We honored every fallen tree with a shout of Moosey. I caught Sam Stopwell genuflecting as he passed Ward's poster in the sandy can. Flotilla formations were drawn up, X's and O's and arrows drawn in the sand. Our campers were campers again, or maybe for the first time. And there's just no substitute for the feeling that gives you as head eagle. They piled into the boats. They were canoes, actually, uh, and we'd painted them to look like tiger sharks and killer whales. <laughs> I stood on the dock, steadying kills, letting each camper know how important he was to Camp Winnesaka. And to me, I told them we are given few opportunities to shine in this life and that this was probably one of those opportunities. They began paddling. Fifty yards from shore, one of the kids, Tony Jameson, turned to wave at me. If I knew then what I know now about the trees, that the reason that it was called the Spirit Grove was because all of the trees were pretty much rotten, and that, you know, 
even just one rotten plank, can seriously affect flotation. Things might have turned out differently, sure. I would like to have anticipated that. It would have been nice if someone had pointed that out. It also would have been nice if the few life jackets we did have had come with some better instructions, and if they were going to be the kind that flip you on your back, that they would have said as much, or at least have been manufactured in such a way that it was impossible to fasten them on backwards. But you're not given a crystal ball when you're hired as head eagle. I'm not a soothsayer. We're given a budget each summer, and the question is always, do you sink it into the new boats and better life jackets, or do you use it for other things like sturdy bunk beds or a new chef? I mean, you know, especially now that uh, we have to have a vegetarian option at every meal. Problems come up, and you have to solve them the best you can. That's what I'm trying to say. <coughs> we fished the stronger swimmers, the, one who made it, the ones who made it back to the dock, out of the water with pike poles. Eric went to fire up the whaler, but the pull cord had snapped last summer, and it hadn't been fixed. Obviously, parents were upset. The phone was pretty much ringing off the hook until we disconnected it. I drafted a letter which told them that with every death of a camper, I, as head eagle, die a thousand little deaths, deaths myself. <laughs> Clearly, I wouldn't have sent them. I'm paraphrasing here. But it's not the how, which yes, the how was sinking boats in a life jacket shortage or malfunctioning. It's not the how, it's the why. You have to keep the why in mind. And these campers, they died to protect the integrity of Camp Winnesaka for the papooses still here, and not to mention for generations to come. And this is where we stress commas in my class. And comma, not to mention for the generations to come. To call it negligence, well, that doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. And it's undermining, not to say demoralizing, for the campers who behaved and were continuing to behave admirably in the service of preserving all things Winnesaka, to sow seeds of doubt in young hearts, I'd say that's unforgivable. The world has enough of that as it is. We had a ceremony. Of course we had a ceremony. Eric went out of his way to make sure the bonfire didn't get out of control. There was some drumming and some dancing. The campers read poems to help usher the spirits of their bunkmates safely to the other side, where their spirits could watch from the tops of the rustling trees to see that they had not passed over in vain, which they had not. Because two days later, we commenced our night owl rocket campaign. It was part of a larger plan to Basically, we sort of figured this had gone on long enough. We'd all pretty much had it at this point with the pussyfoot approach, which was getting us nowhere. Moosey was still missing. We'd lost campers. And the feeling was that you can just, you could push Winnesaka around only so far. Ronald Beltry, a camper here, wanted to be an astronaut. And he knew a little bit about fuel cutoff and trajectory. Todd Splendo, who'd been in juvie or something before coming to Winnesaka, he knew about gasoline incendiaries. <laughs> there was the issue of converting our model AO562 GI parachute rockets into usable ballistics. But that only took a couple of hours. I mean, besides Jamie Wilson, who uh, 
I guess when he was siphoning gas from one of the Condor transports, uh, he didn't know enough to take his mouth off the hose or uh, didn't do it quick enough or he just swallowed on reflex, maybe. Um, it was a pretty smooth operation to get all these rockets up and ready to fire. We used a wagon to get the rockets to their launching pads on the beach. After everything was set, I called the campers to me. I told them that there are days and there are days. And this, this was one of those days. <laughs> Honor Ward Hamilton, I said, who would be proud of you and all of the other papooses who have crossed over in the name of making Winnesaka the safest and most admired camp on Lake Oboe. I told them that people, that, there, that people would always be jealous of the fact that we were Winnesaka campers and that it was a burden that they should carry proudly. I looked at them, looking at me. Every pore and follicle on every camper's face appeared to me a tableau of courage. Do not be diminished, I told them. We fired the rockets. It looked like nothing I'd ever seen. But it reminded me of a legend that we tell the campers on orientation night about Chief Winnesaka, who one day, in his infinite wisdom, realized that what was missing from this forest world of injustice was light. And so he appealed to the heavens and said, let my brothers have light so that they too can see the beauty of the pine cone and the crystalline, <laughs> I hate this part, the crystalline simplicity of a swamp frond collecting a drop of rainwater. Let light break through this redwood camp canopy to model the earth so that flowers can bloom and grow and deliver their sweet pollen to the bumblebee. And the heavens, ever mindful, opened in benevolence. The rockets at their apex went silent. And forgive me, but I feel it's only appropriate to say that at this moment, I felt someone standing behind me, a warm and tacit companion whose nod of approval was small enough to fill eternity. And I guess it was then that Eric pulled me aside and said he had something I needed to see. I told him it wasn't a good time, that the second brigade was ready in their rockets and needed a pep talk, and he insisted. He led me through the spirit grove to the Hondo Lodge. He was sweating a little bit. He was dancing back and forth on, the toe, on his toes, and finally I said, what? And he said, well, and then he opened this door marked custodian. And sitting there among some life jackets I didn't even know we had <laughs> was Moosey. It was kind of an oh shit moment. Eric said, oh shit. And I said, oh shit. It's hard to ex There are times in every head eagle's tenure when he's given a test. And something told me that this was probably one of those times. <laughs> I knew the impact that this revelation could have on things, and I didn't like it. I mean, the whole summer, down the drain. That's what's at stake here. But beyond that even, without Winnesaka, would I have ever learned the difference between a red-tailed skooker and a split-wing skooker and appreciated the value of that difference? Would I, would I have ever canoed across a moonlit lake to put my hand up Sarah Soleil's shirt and rubber pillows after lights out? 
at the age of 14? Would I have ever known countless cookouts, sing-alongs, bunk prank day? Would I have ever grown up to be head eagle, presiding like a benevolent but firm older brother to the kids here at camp? Would my life even have remotely resembled the one I have now? All of that was going through my head. But also going through my head was another question, which was, why is this something that I have to deal with? <laughs> and I suppose that it was then that Eric turned to me and he said he'd thought it over and he'd come up with a solution. We didn't have to say anything. I didn't respond right away. But it was then, I suppose, that I began to understand the burden that we as counselors carried and me, their leader. Musi had started something, sure, but this thing now, it was bigger than Musi. And the campers, they were really having fun looking for him. <laughs> they had come to think of their time here in really specific terms. And if we told them that Musi hadn't ever been at Chickapony, but had been here in this janitorial closet all along, I guess I would argue that it's selfish to shatter belief like that. <laughs> People, cynics, will tell you that facts are essential, but facts can be misleading. One fact is not the entire story, and they are downright destructive if you want to get anything done. Eric looked at me. I nodded. We leaned down, put our hands on Musi, and we lifted him off the floor. He was lighter than I'd expected. His expression was unreadable. <laughs> we carried him through the meadow, past the gully ferns, buried him near the outer teepees in a patch of brambles. As we tamped down the soil, we could hear the second wave of rockets whistling their ascent. The sun was out. Eric, he flipped open his Swiss Army knife and made a small cut on his thumb. He handed it to me, and I did the same. Then we pressed thumbs together. As we walked through the clover grove, Lake Obo came into view, calm and welcoming. On the beach, our campers were dancing around in circles, holding hands like the small children they were, and singing. Thank you very much.